would you soften our hard hearts that we might hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you in this room um, will know the very real pain of friends who, who start off the race with Jesus and then maybe a few months or a few years later just kind of drift off. They bow out early. They, they, they seemingly start off well as believers, but then some way down the line, they're just somewhere else. And we think of the parable of the soils, and in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised. Do you remember that parable from Jesus? It's very graphic and helpful, the, the gospel word being sown to different hearts, different situations, and so different outcomes. There's the path where it's snatched away before roots are even a thing. There's some on rocky ground, and little roots and trouble and persecution comes, and, and, and they don't last. There's, there's the others, it's the wandering hearts, it's the temptations of this world, the desires, the pressures, and they strangle, and, and they, they crush the seed. And then still there's fertile soil, and there's a harvest. And in our text for this morning, from John 15 and 16, it is the Thursday It's the day before the Friday of the cross. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the upper room, wanting them to grow deep roots. Deep roots in Christ so that when he's gone, so that when for a time at least they're all at sea and they're all confused and what on earth is going on, when opposition hits, then the seeds won't be snatched away. And they will continue to grow and these little fragile plants will end up flourishing. They say that to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so he is forewarning them of what is to come. He wants them to know that despite it all seemingly gone wrong, God is not out of control. And rather than the the hardship destroying their faith, actually the hardship can deepen their faith. How are you doing this morning? The summer can be a tricky time spiritually for some. We, we get out of the routines and the rhythms that we often have. We lose some of those helpful structures that are often in place. And maybe like the disciples, you feel some of that fear and anxiety in the upper room. Not, not quite the same context, obviously. But you're looking ahead and wondering, how, how am I going to cope? How is this going to work? How is this next term going to be be successful? How am I going to get through till Christmas? And you're not sure how deep your roots are when it comes down to it. Well, come with me into the text. And it's been my prayer for you and for me this week that we would know the deep encouragement of these words from Jesus. It's a passage of two halves. Um, He I'm focusing mostly on 16, although we will go back into the end of 15 as well. But he warns his disciples from kind of 16, 1 to 5, and then he encourages them from from verse 6 to 15. And in 1 to 5, he warns them that adversity is coming. There's our first word, adversity. And why is that? Well, because if you know what's coming around the corner, if you know the challenges of next month, If you know the reality of the next season, then you'll be much better able to cope with what comes. And so he's warning them, he's warning us, if you like, of what's coming up. And in these verses, there is a what and a who and a why in this warning. 
A what and a who and a why in the adversity. And again, there is it's a specific context, but I think we'll see, whilst it is very specific, it's actually very contemporary as well. So what about the what, the what first? Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you. So they're going to be removed from the synagogue. This is, this is them cancelled, to use modern language. They have been removed from the religious life of Israel. And yet, actually, it's more than that. It's not just a removal from the synagogue. It's a removal from the realm of the living. Ultimate cancellation. They will be killed. And church history will tell us that everyone except one of the early disciples will die as they continue to stand on the gospel of Jesus. These things came to pass. They will be treated in the same way that Jesus was treated. That's the what. Who? Well, I wonder if the who is a bit of a shock. Because it doesn't come from the Roman occupation. It doesn't come from the enemies of God's people. The folk we might expect. But rather it comes from within God's people. People who claim to know him. People who had to worship each week. People who tick all the boxes. They, they claim to know God and yet by their actions they show that they don't know him. And the gospel unfolds and the pages turn and we will see these leaders in action. And, and by no means it's not all of them, but Pharisees, Sanhedrin, leaders who conspire to be done of Jesus, to get rid of Jesus. That's the what and the who, but the why. The why is perhaps where our jaws drop. By their actions, you see that they don't know the God whom they claim to serve. So verse 2, they think they are offering a service to God. Or verse 3, they, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So in their minds, they are doing God a service. In their minds, he is pleased with them for what they do. They are driven by their false understanding of God. But actually, they don't know the Father. They couldn't be more mistaken. Maybe you're scratching your head slightly as to how this can be. They seem so zealous, so wholehearted, so certain. How could they get it so wrong? What's happened? Where's the wrong turn they've taken in, in years before? Just allow me one cross-reference. It's, it's John chapter 5. You can look it up if you like. But John chapter 5 and verse 39 and 40. I think it's incredibly relevant then. And actually, it's incredibly relevant for us now as well. Let me read the verses for us. Jesus says to them, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Isn't that shocking? It is very possible to know your Bibles like the back of your hands, but not understand who God is, not understand who his son is. Stick them in a Bible quiz. These guys would beat you hands down, but they missed the main character. They didn't understand who it was all about, and so they never had true life, which, which then leads them to the kind of place where well, they will persecute and take the life of Jesus and persecute and take the life of the people of Jesus. Just because you're wholehearted in your devotion, it does not mean that you are right. In fact, it can mean that you are completely wrong.
And Phil helped us to see this last week, actually, that adversity is a reality. Our, our culture, increasingly, as it turns its back on God, seemingly, we feel that increasingly. We feel the squish and the squeeze. We, we feel the minority. You're, it's as if you, you, you're coming down, or you're going up a, a kind of flight of stairs, round and round and round, and more and more people are coming down again. And they're kind of barging into you, and we feel, I'm just going to stand at the side and let you go past and try and nip up. And we just feel that pressure. And maybe you're fearful, thinking, I'm not sure I can keep doing this. And you're getting the white flag ready. You're getting the towel ready to throw it. Or maybe it's not quite that stark. Maybe you're just saying, I'm just going to turn the volume down a bit. You know, I'll start university, and I'll go along to the Christian Union, or I'll go and find a church, but I'm just going to turn the volume down a bit, just to make life a bit easier. Of course, the weird thing is, adversity has always been a thing for the people of God. You look back through the pages of church history, you look around the world today, and the, th- the fact is, we in these little area here are something of an anomaly, a blip, in this little period of history, in this little part of the world, and now adversity is coming, and we're not quite sure what to do with it. We're not quite sure how to keep going, how to cope. Fast forward a decade or so. If you're in your teens now, you'll be in your 20s. If you're in your 20s, you'll be in your 30s, 30s, 40s, 40s, 50s. And whatever we are, it's 2033 now. I've just missed 10 years. And you look at our culture and the trajectory and you think, well, unless Jesus has come back, I'm not sure how I'm going to cope as a Christian in 10 years' time. Because the way things have changed in the last 10 years, I look ahead and extrapolate and, goodness me. Or maybe you don't even know to go 10 years' time. Maybe you just go for this next season. How are you going to cope with the stresses and anxieties of the next month and what's coming up? Your job situation, your future prospects, that, that appointment with your doctor that you have, you're wanting to witness to friends and to colleagues, you just think, I'm not sure how I'm going to cope. What's the answer? Well, it seems to me from the passage, and I think it's always the case, God never calls us to do it on our own. If you look ahead and you're terrified, whether it's next season next decade, he always equips us for the task that he calls us to. We are never on our own. It was true then, and we'll see he encourages them with that. But it's true today as well. God will help you. He is with you. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Doesn't mean you can just kind of fast forward the valleys and the hardships. But he's always with us in them. We are never on our own. So if our first half is adversity, the second half is advocate. And it's really important we get this. It's extraordinary. The ultimate grace that we receive as his people, as his loved children, the ultimate grace that we get from him is not the blessing of stuff. It's not the things that he gives us, the benefits, if you like, of being a believer. But rather it's the blessing of him. That is what we have. He is what we have. He is the prize. He is the ultimate blessing. It's always him. And if in your world your prayers are usually or only for situations, circumstances, stresses to be sorted, maybe we're missing something. Maybe we are missing that he has promised us himself ultimately, that we get him 
It's a good thing to be a Christian because he gives us himself. We are never on our own. And look ahead to next week, to next month, to next season, to to next decade. You're never on your own, Christian. Again, let's zoom into the passage and we'll see how this works out. So our God is a God who sends. Our God is a giver, a sender. And so verse 5, just as the Father sent the Son... So now verse 7, with the Father, Jesus will send the Spirit. Our God is a sender. And why does that matter? It matters because the departure of Jesus does not mean the end of the work for Jesus. It's not the end of his ministry just because he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It is not job done, feet up, crack open a beer and some crisps, and he's just going to do some people watching and see how it all pans out. That's not the plan. It's not the end of his activity in the world. He is going to continue his work through his church, empowered by his spirit. And so verse 7, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now Matt did a great job, end of July. I think it was the 31st of July. You can rewind and have a listen to that at some point if you weren't around. Maybe you're on holiday But he launched this idea of advocate for us from chapter 14. And the way that John does is he kind of raises an issue and then leaves it for a bit and comes back to it from a different level or a different angle, different perspective. And we saw back in chapter 14 that he is the spirit of truth. He is going to come alongside his people. We are are never on our own. And this idea of advocate is the language of of law court. It's, It's God coming alongside to represent and to help and to comfort and to support and all these things kind of in one word. And as he comes to be with us, it's as if Jesus is with us. He's not inferior, he's not second class, it's not just an idea, but but a reality as God's spirit comes. It's as if we have another Jesus with us. Not just a matter of theology and doctrine, but he's at work now. And not just in church, he's at work tomorrow. As you go to work, as you go on holiday. God's Spirit is with you and is working. How? Uh, Two things in the passage that we're going to tease open. Um, You'll forgive my alliteration, but firstly, he's going to incriminate the world, and secondly, he will instruct the disciples. Incriminate the world and instruct the disciples. So God's Spirit at work outside the church, and God's Spirit at work inside the church. So firstly, outside the church, incriminate the world. Do you know, it is not part of our job description to convict the world of its natural standing before the Lord or or its need to seek forgiveness. That is not part of your job description. That is not something that you can do or need to do. Only God can do that. Let me read again, verse 8 to 11. When he, the advocate, the spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness and judgment. About sin because people don't believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Sin, righteousness and judgment. And it's fair to say gallons of ink have been spilled on these three. But boil it right down and my take is this. Sin, verse 9, because we think we're okay and we don't need Jesus. 
And yet the Spirit will come and open our blind eyes to our reality. And indeed, part of that sin is not believing in Jesus. It's rejecting him, doing away with him. So there's sin. It's righteousness, verse 10, I think because Jesus is perfectly righteous. And he is going to the Father, and so he is just, and he has been vindicated. So it's not so much our righteousness, it's his righteousness. It's sin, we think we don't need Jesus. Righteousness because, well, he is the righteous one. He is just. He has been vindicated by the Father. And judgment because, verse 11, if the prince of this world stands condemned, well, so will those who do his bidding. And so the righteous Jesus will come back one day and judge. And it is the job of the advocate, of God's spirit, to prove the world to be in the wrong about those things. Maybe folk think, well, I'm okay, thank you very much. I'm not too bad. I don't don't need forgiveness. I mean, I'm all right, aren't I? We turn our back on God. No, he will come and convince people of the reality of their sin. Maybe people think Jesus' mission is a foolish failure. But how can you believe in something so stupid, something so small and weak and little? And yet, no, God's Spirit will come and convince people, convict people of the righteousness, the vindication of Jesus. Or maybe we think God doesn't care. God doesn't care about the world. He doesn't care about the injustice. When God's Spirit will come and convince people in terms of judgment, that one day Jesus will come back and he will judge. So our advocate will come and and incriminate the world. He is at work outside the church. But, but, it seems to me this isn't some kind of clever sort of mystical thing that the Spirit is going to do by himself. Um, So come back with me. Phil touched on it last week, and he read it for us again this week as well. But verse 26 and 27 of chapter 15. As I read it, I want you to notice the word testify. Okay? Testify. So when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. You see, they... The apostles, the disciples, we are to speak, we are to testify. And in so doing, he will testify as well. Which means when we think about the spirits at work in the world in terms of sin, righteousness, judgment, it's not some magic way that he's going to do without us. Well, he can do that. But that's not primarily how it works. As God always works, he uses people. It is through words, through his disciples speaking, them testifying. So here's a scenario for you. You have that conversation about Jesus with your friend, your colleague, your cousin, whoever it is, your teammate. And you prayed for the open door and it's there and you're shaking like a leaf and you think, okay, quick arrow prayer, Lord, help me with this. And it goes so much better than you thought. And why? Do you know, I'm afraid at root it's not because you were amazing. It's not because you had the killer illustration with the perfect answers to their questions. But rather, his spirit was at work in their hearts, taking our words, our weak and feeble words, and bringing conviction. Conviction about sin, 
about the righteousness of Jesus, about judgment to come even. And some of us will know that from the other side. It's the friend who spoke to you one day, shaking like a leaf. And yet God did a work in your heart so that you believed them, him. Why? Well, not at root because they were amazing with the killer illustration or the perfect answers to your questions, but rather because God's spirit was at work in you, proving you to be wrong, proving that you needed him. Okay, so there's God's spirit at work, the advocate, at work outside the church through the words of his people, incriminating the world. As well as that, there's God's spirit at work inside the church as, as, as his words are spoken. And so what will he do? Secondly, he will instruct the disciples. Let me read from verse 13 to 15 again. But when he... The spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. I have to confess, I find John's gospel hard because there's just so much kind of round and round stuff. But I think this is what's going on here. Remember, this teaching came to the 11 apostles on the Thursday night. And the next day will be the death of Jesus. And then a couple of days after that will be the resurrection of Jesus. So he will die on the Friday. He'll be raised again on the Sunday. This is the Thursday before that. And Jesus says his spirit is going to come and help them to comprehend those things, to grasp those things that their minds, their hearts would be open to see what's going on. And so verse 14, to glorify him. So again, imagine you're there on the Friday. And in front of you, you've got a Messiah hanging on a cross with a couple of criminals either side. And people mocking and shouting and jeering. And you're stood in front of him with your heart broken and thinking... I gave it all up for this. I left everything for this. And there are tears in your eyes and it all seems just so confusing. And there he is before you, dying on a Roman gibbet, hanging there. And what would you think was going on? What would the apostles have thought was going on? But they didn't get it until later, until they read the scriptures and they remembered what Jesus said to them until God's spirit was at work and the penny drops and they grasp it, they comprehend it. Maybe it was by the spirit that they saw he was going to be Genesis 3, the serpent crusher and they understood the cross or they saw he was going to be the one who would be a sacrifice to cover their nakedness and their shame, Genesis 3 or he would be the provision of a substitute, Genesis 22 or a a protective substitute, Exodus 12, with the Passover, or he would be the one who would come and take away all their guilt and bring true atonement for them, Leviticus 16, or he would be the one who would be pierced for their transgressions, Isaiah 53, or indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1. I think the point he's making is that if we would have seen his death and experienced his resurrection without the work of the Spirit helping us understand those things, 
we still wouldn't get it. We just wouldn't get it. Only by the work of his spirit will the penny drop. And so only by the work of his spirit will they be able to proclaim that message to a world that needs to hear it. And the son always spotlighted the father. And so the spirit spotlights the son, helping them understand both the difficult days to come, the reality of what's ahead, but actually the message that they need to proclaim in the midst of that difficulty as well. And so you see, we started the passage a bit fearful, slightly scared this idea of adversity and hardship, and it ends up, I think, being wonderfully encouraging. The culmination of him going will be his spirit sent and at work inside the church, outside the church, Inside as the apostles, the disciples then, us, are are equipped to speak, to understand. And outside that he will take our words and bring conviction when it comes to sin, righteousness, judgment. And the evidence of that, has it worked? Has it worked? Look around you. It has worked. Is us here today, you and me in this room, and indeed millions of others meeting around the world today. So, go on, humour me. Just close your eyes a moment. And just imagine the sun rising this morning, Sunday the 23rd of August, to the far, 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 far east of us, in the central Pacific, the tiny little line islands they are called, Tarina Islands, I think they're named locally. Christians meeting to worship Jesus. They are, I think, 13 hours ahead of us even. And then the sun rises bit by bit by bit. And 12 hours ahead, you've got Samoa, Tonga, Vanuatu, more believers meeting. You've got New Zealand and Fiji. You've got Australia in on the game. You've got Papua New Guinea. You've got Japan, Korea, Philippines, China, Malaysia, Indonesia. Everywhere you've got believers meeting on a Sunday morning, worshipping the risen Jesus. And then you've got India and various stars and Eastern Africa and the Middle East and Russia even and, and Central and Eastern Africa and Europe and us as we meet, a little nation of tea drinkers in the middle of the sea. And then you've got the Atlantic, Greenland, Brazil, North America, Central America, South America, more people gathering, millions of Christians worshipping a risen Jesus. Argentina, Chile, Peru, and then the west coast of America and then Hawaii and you're back to the start again. And it worked. And we might not look very exciting or powerful or impressive or clever or wise as you look around, let's be honest. But even in this room, there are stories of lives turned upside down by this message of Jesus. Circumstances transformed as people have grasped the reality of the resurrection. And then take our little stories here and multiply them from as far to the east as you can go and as far to the west as you can go. Countless lives transformed. And yes, there is adversity still. Jesus was right. We follow in his footsteps and we will face those things ourselves. And again, you can multiply that around the world, adversity. But we still have an advocate who is with us. Still at work. He is still at work outside the church, incriminating the world in terms of sin and righteousness and judgment, opening blind eyes to the people's need of forgiveness. Indeed, today even, 
New people, for the first time, will bow the knee to King Jesus as his spirit is at work. But as well as him incriminating the world, the advocate instructs the disciples, you and me. So we, we understand and we grasp and we are able to proclaim this message of Jesus to a broken and cynical and angry, polarized, watching world. And we trust and believe his death and resurrection for ourselves and we share that good news. Has it worked? Yes, it's worked. And it's still working. Let me pray. Well, thank you that you, you promised never to leave us alone. We are never on our own. But thank you for your spirit at work. But we confess we need him in the midst of the adversity all around us, in the midst of opposition, persecution even. But you never leave us on our own. And we thank you that you help us by your spirit. Help us to trust and to cling on to and to grasp the message of the cross and the resurrection. But more than that, as we trust it for ourselves, would you help us to open our mouths that we might speak to others of it and that you might work in their lives. And Lord, we thank you for that glimpse that your plan has worked all over the world this morning. People worshipping the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.